Hello, and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. Today, we talk with David Cantini. David is a multi-talented musician who plays flute, saxophone, bombard, whistle, and feet, along with numerous other wind instruments, including classical oboe. He's a founding member of the bands Wild Asparagus and Swallowtail, and has been an important fixture of the Western Massachusetts contradance scene for many years, in addition to traveling the country with his bands. He's a longtime master of the Guiding Star Grange in Greenfield, Massachusetts, which has a rich and vibrant history and a full schedule of dance events. Well, usually. We talked about David's roots and how he learned to play for contra dances, his transition from classical oboe to traditional music on the flute, the excitement of the bombard and the influence of French tunes, the ways that he has seen the dance scene change in the last 30 years, some of his favorite tunes to play, and a lot more. We had so much fun talking, we just couldn't stop. So this interview is divided into two parts. We're wearing masks during the interview, and it was a hot day on the porch. So thanks for bearing with us. Hope you enjoy. Well, good to be on your porch. <laughs> it is so good to see you. It's, I was like, this is the first sound check I've done in quite some time. I don't know about oh, you. Geez. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Except I've been trying to do, you know, video things, which is... Yeah. It's not my cup of tea, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I'm more into the uh, immediate and personal. Mm -hmm. What kind of video things have you been doing? Oh, uh, uh, well, I've done, been doing some recording for my students, but also just sort of kind of thinking about posting and, uh, you know, curious about, because I feel that um, my desire to share music is probably just as strong as people's desire to be part of music. You know, I think it's showing us. And I've always believed in uh, everybody being able to make music and having, you know, having that opportunity. And now it's really that way, I think. I was just sitting here thinking about how many people more must be working on playing and singing and doing their own rather than relying on those of us mm -hmm. who have put ourselves forward. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I, I, it's, it's wonderful because 
I think what people are sharing online isn't necessarily have to be limited. It doesn't have to be perfect. Oh, absolutely. We can't make it perfect I love, now. Well, I love seeing like people just doing their, you know, whatever it is and yeah. going like, oh, well, that wasn't that good, but here right. it is. And it's interesting because we don't have a lot of recordings of contra dance music that aren't either studio albums or really raw live recordings, mm -hmm. like just from a recorder somewhere in the room or off the board. Yep. There's only been a couple bands who have done like proper live recordings, like Wild Asparagus yeah, right. did one. Yep. Yep. And so it's interesting. It's like uh, we don't get to hear this music much if you're not in person. Right. And so it's fun to see it flourish in this uh, new... It's funny to take such an old tradition and uh, make it technological, but everyone... I mean, as a community, I won't say everyone as individuals is embracing it. Yeah. Because I think for yeah. some people, it's really hard. But yeah. it's been amazing. Well, I'm glad to hear you've still been playing. Yeah, I've been playing a lot. You know, and this traditional music is social music. And that means it's, you know, it's also for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's to share and it's to be played together. You know, so many of us play uh, socially like in sessions of one sort or another, jam sessions or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, and that's part of the whole experience. And uh, mm -hmm. so now there are people getting together at distance or mm -hmm. in the family. We, I get to play at home with, with uh, Gus, who's home. Lucky you. Lucky me. <laughs> Lucky Gus. Lucky, I hope so. <laughs> I hope he feels that way. I mean, you and Gus, I remember years ago, I stopped by your house and you were playing tunes, and you have such a wonderful repertoire of shared tunes. It's really great. Yeah, well, you know, I, I've, he's learned a lot of the band, you know, the asparagus tunes, uh, you know, a fair, a fair amount due to pressure, I guess, probably. <laughs> and then there are all of his tunes that he's interested in that I try to learn. Some of them being banjo tunes aren't particularly good flute tunes, but mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting aspect too, you know, because mm -hmm. I learn what, what's hard for him and what he likes and his range and, you know, what, so. And Gus specifically plays tenor banjo? Yes. Yeah. And some guitar. He's, he was working on guitar and mandolin, but uh, I'd say his main, main instrument is the tenor banjo. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the main difference between a good tenor banjo tune and a good flute tune? Uh, um, yeah, well, I don't know. I can only speak for what his sort of aesthetic is. But right. they're much more sort of less, to me, they're less melodic tunes, more pattern oriented. And yep. of course, they don't go too high because... Yep. Uh, it gets really uncomfortable to, to play up the neck, especially on his banjo, because it's a long, longer neck than some. He keeps saying, well, maybe I should have a shorter neck banjo, you know, but... Um, so that's, that's one in particular. Like, I've been playing a, a, a number of, you know, like a lot of the G tunes, they'll go up to high B or something mm -hmm. like that, and it's just like, up oh, that note, and higher. Yeah. Change... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you are still playing tunes together. That makes me happy to think about it. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you got started playing for Contra Dances. And I mean, you've played with the bands Wild Asparagus and Swallowtail <laughs> for a long time now. <laughs> yeah. And actually, so I was listening to Anna's 
little history and a pattern. And our history, our early days are sort of similar. I studied uh, classical oboe. Mm -hmm. I think she was probably always on clarinet. Yeah. Um, and I did, I got into, uh, even before that, I guess I was introduced to recorder because my parents were into like, so, you know, playing together and we all played recorders together. And then later we, during the Renaissance music rediscovery in the what late 60s when I was in late in high school I learned that music and that is a lot of the Renaissance music is dance music so mm -hmm. I guess I had a propensity to play dance music and not only that the my favorite classical music was all like Baroque stuff on the oboe and a lot of those are dance Mm -hmm. uh, at least called dances, you know, mm -hmm. like the minuet and the sarabande and the bourree and, you know, all those are, are dance forms. Um, but then after college, so I was studying classical oboe through college and doing freelancing. Um, and during college, I got into dancing, mm -hmm. which many of us did. Um, and the real, one of the dance heydays, I would say, was in the late 70s, like 77, 78, 79. North it was the whole area in Northampton was burgeoning with young contradance bands, people just trying stuff out. And uh, uh, the proto swallowtail started around that time. I wasn't in it, but... Uh, uh, Christy Kievel started a band at, at Amherst College called the Rotten Apples. Mm -hmm. And of course, they were, they were pretty raw and pretty rotten, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, Christy was a great uh, bassoon player, and we played together in the Amherst Orchestra, uh, Amherst College Orchestra. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I think he found that the bassoon repertoire was limited, and I don't think he ever took the bassoon to to contradance music. Mm -hmm. He was playing accordion and calling and so that started the, the swallowtail trend and um, my roommate in Northampton invited me to come to a jam rehearsal kind of thing because for some reason and I started playing recorder again for contradancing. Hmm. Um, didn't didn't really think of trying the oboe till quite a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, you know, recorder is, uh, it, it is not in the, I, I think it is in the contradance tradition. I remember there was uh, Jerry, Jerry, uh, what was his name, from Vermont who played uh, played recorder and so there were a few of us mm -hmm. he was a bit older what was his name not only that but he uh, had only one hand and then the stump of an arm and somehow he managed to play the recorder wow with that um, kind of play it like a tabor pipe or something yeah yeah um, then, let's see, in Swallowtail, I guess I probably ended up starting to use the oboe and uh, 
the curious part about that, and many musicians will uh, will sympathize with this, is that since I was studying oboe and reading classical music from an early age, it was really hard to play without looking at music. Mm. Even though I could play the recorder just fine without looking mm -hmm. at music, the oboe was a whole different thing, and it took me a long time for some reason. I just remember that as being a strange stumbling block. Uh, yeah, so Swallowtail, we went... We, we had this harebrained idea to do a cross-country tour in 1981, whether we were ready or not. And <laughs> Who were the members of Swaltail at the time? Well, the same as they are now. Uh -huh. uh, let's see. That, so that was in 1981. So, what, almost 40 years? <laughs> yeah. I was seven. <laughs> so uh, it was Ron Grossline, George Marshall, Tim Van Egmond, Myself, David Cantini, and who am I missing? Tim Triplett. Yeah. On piano. And he was, uh, in 1981, he was finishing, working on his dissertation, a uh, doctoral dissertation in philosophy. So we were driving, and he was writing longhand. And uh, we played in some crazy places, Yellowstone Park. We went to Helena, Montana, where they'd never had live music before for a dance. Maybe they'd never even had a dance. We just talked someone into letting us do it. Wow. We stayed in someone's teepee out in the prairie. <laughs> Amazing. It was crazy. Really fun. And as far as I know, the first time a, a contra dance band ever tried to tour. Yeah, were there no other bands who were traveling? No, uh-uh. It, it was just a lark. It was a summer vacation, really. You know, if we came home with any money at all, it would have been great. And I guess we did. I know it paid for itself, so. Yeah. Did it take a lot of convincing for some of these, if people aren't used to having mm -hmm. bands travel to their dances? Or were they all well, kind of intrigued by the idea? I guess they were. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you know, because it was personal contacts. Right. Um, that Ron Grossline had relatives in Minnesota, so we went there. Oh, and out of the blue, I mean, I just contacted uh, Prairie Home Companion. We played on Prairie Home Companion. I just wrote them a letter and sent them a demo tape, and and we were on. So cool. uh, we did that. We, we met some of the old... You know, some of the people that were on Prairie Home Companion in the way early days. Um, I remember there was a drummer, Rhett Maddock, and of course Garrison was there, and um, our, I think our friend Pop Wagner, I don't know if he was on that particular show, but... Mm -hmm. uh, wow, what a, what a trip! <laughs> Did that trip change things for your band at all, going through that experience together? Um, well, I'm sure all the playing helped, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, because we were, um, yeah, you know, I don't remember much other, you know, I, uh, that we had a good time, Yeah. we played, we, we were carrying this big sound system around, we'd unload it out of the van and set it up and, uh, peop you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and all beginner dances, of course. Right. You know, just like 
the very, very rawest of raw. Um, we went to Spokane. We met Penn Fix, who's one of the people there. We played, as I remember, we played for some fair. There was a fair, and we were driving, you know, through these crowds of people in Spokane and set up and played on their, uh, maybe not for a dance. That might have just been a concert. Wow. Noah and I were supposed to play in Spokane last month. Oh. Yeah. At a square dance convention. Oh. <laughs> it's man. interesting overlap. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. And you had George Marshall with you yes. calling. You, yes. So you're traveling with a built-in caller, which... And Tim. And Tim. Tim Van right. Edmund was calling, Right, too. because in Swallowtail, Tim and George would split mm -hmm. the calling. Did mm -hmm. they do that back then, too? Yeah, they did. They did. And George had already been out to the West Coast. He had started, maybe among others, but he was one of the first to get contra dancing going in the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. He was working out there. I, I remember something about he was live, working on a, in a shingle mill or something uh, near near Seattle mm -hmm. uh, for the summer. Yeah, George, I definitely want to have him on the podcast later <laughs> too and talk about his experiences. Yeah, we uh, Noah and I, Buddy System, did what we call George Tour, where he does the Pacific yes. Northwest Tour, which you've done yeah. many times. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was telling us some of those stories, and they're great. <laughs> so Swallowtail was a thing, and then how did Wild Asparagus get started? Well, our second cross-country tour in 1982, Tim Triplett was finishing his dissertation and couldn't go. I and see. for some reason, we decided that we wanted to do it anyway. George found Anne Percival, she had just moved to the area. She was like this beginning piano player, but, you know, could do it. Mm -hmm. um, though I have to say, when we got together for rehearsals, uh, she really didn't know the difference between a jig and a reel. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we took her on tour. <laughs> wow, that's a good way to learn, though, you know? Yeah. And she played guitar some, and we did these concerts, and we sang, she sang, which was a nice addition to the band, though we all tried to sing. I'd say that we were, it was good to have her, her uh, heading up any of the singing stuff. And, um, you know, during the course of that tour, it turned out that Anne and I were the only ones that drank coffee. So every morning we went out looking for coffee, and... That's how our relationship began, I would say. Yeah. Every day it was pretty pretty fun, pretty good. And again, we went all cross-country. I think we played at Yellowstone a second time, and, and it was for the uh, crew at Yellowstone. They have these uh, entertainment things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just driving through all that beautiful country and meeting people all across. We, uh, they also showed us all these hot springs and we'd, we'd uh, really got to see some of the best spots because people would show us. That's beautiful. People in this community have been very like hospitable, you know, they want to yeah. show. It's, it feels like being a traveling minstrel a little bit, you know, <laughs> or a bard or something. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's great that you and Anne bonded over coffee because now, like for many country musicians, looking for good coffee <laughs> is 
a time-honored tradition, especially with, like, new waves of coffee, third-wave coffee or whatever. So you were doing it way back before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the original hipsters. <laughs> yeah. And so um, wild asparagus. Oh, so, yeah, so we got back, and, of course, Tim wasn't about to give up his position in Swallowtail. and. Right. Uh, I, Anne and I wanted to play together, and uh, and a lot of the other band people had other jobs. Ron was going back to work at uh, UMass. Um, Tim Tripp, well, yeah, and then let's see, Ron. George didn't really have anything else to do. Tim Triplett, I think, or Tim Van Egmond um, was also working on his uh, uh, storytelling career. And stuff like that. Um, so it, it ended up being Anne and George and me, and uh, we started a band. We called ourselves Three Hand Reel, hmm. and it was no fiddle, which is pretty weird because George played a lot of concertina, and mm -hmm. I, by then, was playing oboe, and I had picked up a silver flute in Milwaukee at a uh, uh, um, uh, you know. A, like a second-hand store? Yeah, like a, not even, uh, you know, um, what's it called? A pawn shop? Yeah, yeah. pawn shop, that's what yeah. it's called. So I got this flute at a pawn shop, and it was decent, uh, a silver gamine heart, mm -hmm. um, pretty well worn out, and mm -hmm. I finished wearing it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so I was starting to play flute more, I had one of Ralph Sweet's fifes. I think that's how I really got into doing the keyless and not, you know, going from recorder to more traditional fingering type things like whistle and and fife and and keyless flute. But I had the silver flute. Um, so we got back. Uh, I was playing oboe. I was playing flute. And there was no fiddle, and we still got hired, so I guess we were okay. <laughs> uh, we had our first, um, in 1983, 84, it was probably the winter of 83, we got hired uh, at Brasstown, as I remember, mm. for, uh, for our first official dance thing, whatever it was. I don't know if it was Christmas, it might have been Christmas. At Brasstown. The country dance school. Yeah. 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 Um, John C. Campbell. I get the mixed up. John C. Campbell. Yeah. And then at some point you added Becky? Well, no. Uh, our first fiddler, so we, we made a recording um, without, uh, without fiddle, and, and uh, of course the, the classical influences did show in our arrangements and our choice of music. Um, we didn't, we, so we added a fiddle, Anne was rather adamant ultimately about wanting another musician and a fiddler, and it was Vandy Kaner. Oh! And that was probably 84, 85, mm -hmm. and he played with us for a number of years, and uh, 
that it was it was it was great. It really affected our sound. You know, he was a great experienced dance musician already at that point. Mm -hmm. um, having grown up with the Caners and the the foregone conclusions, mm -hmm. I think he was part of that. Legendary. Yeah. Notorious, maybe. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> a lot of different words. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Vandy, and then when he stopped playing, uh, we found Carrie Elkin to play with us. Right. And he was, I would say, responsible for our immersion in the Irish vein of music. He, though he played a lot of different genres. He, I, I can't say that he did much old time, but he did a lot of French Canadian and, uh, um, and Irish. Mm -hmm. And before Kerry played with us, we were much less... He, he was fairly adamant about keeping Irish tunes with Irish tunes and old-time tunes with old-time tunes, and mm -hmm. he didn't want to mix the genres. And we were, before that, really just fine with it all. And, and you know, again, that's just an aesthetic choice. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I would say that predominantly over the years we have kept to Carrie's aesthetic, uh, you know, with because we're doing now, we're doing so many original tunes that it's hard to hard to say that you know it's will obviously mix uh, original tunes with whatever seems to go. Mm -hmm. But that aesthetic still there, kind of underlying things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your repertoire before you started playing with Carrie? Uh. Very eclectic, and it was New England, more New England, more uh, sort of uh, French. I, I don't know if it was French Canadian, but uh, just sort of more. Um, I feel like the repertoire was fairly static. Uh, and I know there were a, a number of books. You know, there was the Thousand Fiddle Tunes, and Ralph Sweet was really getting big at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, he had a book that he published, but of course, when, if you played for Ralph, um, he would say, okay, play page 18 in my book or mm -hmm. whatever. And it was nice sets of tunes, you know, it was sets of tunes, as you were saying, Dudley was not into uh, medleys, mm -hmm. really, but uh, somewhere in there, you know, people did start changing tunes and... Uh, mixing up tunes a little bit. Um, and I just remember having, feeling that the, the repertoire was very limited. And when we were working with uh, Vandy, it was always like, well, you know, where are we going to go? Like, what, where, where are the, uh, you know, it, it was a, a funny time that way. And then when I got into Irish and Carrie was playing Irish, it was just like, all of a sudden, there was this huge repertoire of stuff that, you know, some of it was good for dance and some not. So mm -hmm. you had to choose what were the good dance tunes uh, or would work. Of course, Carrie had excellent instincts as a dance fiddler. Oh, so yeah. So would know which tunes yes. would be suited or not. And some Irish tunes, just for the listeners, the phrasing is a little less clear. 
and yeah. perhaps not as good for dancing or the way the rhythmic emphasis is there's a lot of little subtle things that make a tune good for dancing or not good for dancing yeah did yeah. you change the way you play the tunes sometimes oh absolutely i mean i feel that i'm not a, I, even though I, I mostly i play irish tunes i'm not steeped in i it, it's kind of like well we all have our own style you know and and so um I remember getting together with people like having jams and saying, well, this guy's a sort of a, an old time player, but he knows a lot of uh, a lot of Irish tunes. And they would play the tunes in a sort of an old time with a old time rhythm and nothing wrong, you know, nothing wrong with with that at all. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're trying to be. Uh, I don't know. Totally traditional. Whatever that is, because well, right. I think totally, I think totally traditional is, and that's the thing about traditional music. It is for, I think, for each of us individually to make our own. You know, we're given permission to make our own music, mm -hmm. which is not like classical music. I, I was just thinking of it recently. Um, the fact that um, when you're presented with a piece to play. And you're um, playing anything composed. Mm -hmm. Somebody else is telling you what notes they have chosen are the right ones to play. Right. And it's kind of nice to to be able to rest on somebody else's choices. <laughs> you don't have to make those choices. On um, on the other hand, you don't really get to to figure out what it is that really turns you on musically yeah and it can be kind of paralyzing like i also was a classical musician for a long time before playing trad music and trying to play someone else's intentions and the whole concept of doing it right and there being a right you know and i the thing that really amazed me about trad music when i discovered it it's like we're all a conduit for this tradition these tunes pass through us and they get slightly changed by passing through us and then they pass on to the next person. Yes. And that was just really yes. incredible. Yes. I love the thought of playing tunes that other people played hundreds of years ago. And I'm fascinated by, the, I have to say, I can't, I am not very good at mimicking anybody. But I love learning other people's versions of tunes mm -hmm. and at, you, at least using their version as a jumping off point. I've mm -hmm. listened to a lot of old the old recordings and learn tunes from those and I like preserving them because I, I feel the same way it's like you're taking something that somebody of somebody's essence either a rhythmic idea or just a the set of notes or even the the idea of tune that they played and recreating it in mm -hmm. the present and carrying them on that way yes Mm -hmm. It's that's part of the tradition. It's a wonderful, wonderful part of this feeling of being in the stream, which brings up, you know, the I, I, the fact that I was playing oboe and whistle, uh, not even whistle, but recorder, mm -hmm. and feeling in the early contra dance days very much of an outsider because um, even though I think in the contra dance tradition such as it was, almost anything 
goes. Um, and my understanding is that in the past, there was a lot of, it basically used what you had. And there were wind players, and I think back in the 30s and 40s, there were bands of, uh, you, you know, primarily sort of like saxophone and stuff like that. Um, but by the time I started playing, it was all very, very fiddle-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the New England tradition of playing for dances, it was... Uh, you know, classical instruments were, were, would have been used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there have been lots of large dance orchestras. Yeah. Over time, that had all sorts of things in them, horns and yeah, all, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And back at that time, uh, when we were starting up, there was the Brattleboro Brass Band, mm. which was cool. And they would. It was a great sound, great to dance to. That sounds fun. Do you know who was in that band? Haven't heard of them before. I have to look them up. Uh, well, I feel even though he didn't, I don't think he plays brat, uh, any wins, but I think Michael McKernan was involved. He was also in Jack, Applejack. He lives oh. out in, uh, you know, Mike McKernan? I know of him. Yeah, he, he did some scholarly work and is still doing that. He's out in... Uh, like Tucson or out in the out west somewhere right now. We could look it up. I want to try to post links to some of these things. Yeah, for yeah. Because Mike is a great, great resource. Actually, he did a a bunch of sort of historical research and is still doing that. Do oh. you think at the time? Do you think that Carrie was one of the first people to bring Irish music into the contra tradition? Were there other people doing it at the time? I remember the Greenfield, uh, the the Greenfield. What was it? What did they call it? Dave Kaner's band, in the at some point started making a point with. It was David and uh, Mary Kay Brass, and then at some point Stuart came on. Stuart Kenny came on, but they made and Bo Bradham was the one of the big fiddlers, one of the fiddlers, and I think it was sort of in that time period that they started going like, oh yeah, we're going to start playing Irish tunes. Is this Greenfield Dance Band? Greenfield Dance yeah. Band, yeah. Peter Siegel was a part of that, maybe later? Oh, eventually, yeah. yeah, and maybe later. Yeah. Bo Bradham um, was the fiddler alongside Dave uh, Kaner, and, um, and they were doing... Um, they were doing Irish tunes, so I don't know if it was if that was uh, right uh, at the same time. I'm just interested in the shift between when, like, there was a time when at a contra dance you would expect to find New England tunes, and now you can find tunes from any genre that you can make square enough to dance to, and even that you can't. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's true. And uh, that shift is interesting. And there were a few folks like Randy Miller had an interest in Irish tunes and Irish yeah. music, and Carrie and. But you know, Randy and Rodney did that fabulous recording. There were there are a number of great recordings from back then, but you know, the New England Chestnuts is just like mm -hmm. those were sort of the tunes that, as I you know, as I remember, have to go back and listen. But um, 
They were the New England chestnuts. Yeah, classic tunes. And what was the other one with the accordion player um, who's moved to Seattle now? He used to be in Baltimore. Laurie Andrews? Yeah. Yeah, because they did an album. They did a, maybe a number of albums together yeah. that were just really top of the line. Yeah. What do you think? Do you notice a difference in the dance experience when you play New England tunes and other kinds of tunes? Or like. Besides the nostalgia? <laughs> yeah, besides the nostalgia. There's a lot of nostalgia. I mean, right now, um, because of the situation. I, I mean, I, I, and maybe even before, I, I do like going back and reviewing the, the, the old contra dance tunes. You know, some of them match up with dances like chorus jig and, and, uh, uh, money musk and, mm. uh, uh, lamplighters even. Yes. And Hull's victory. I just, I just, somehow came across Hull's Victory recently and it was like, oh yeah, that was a great dance and it was a great tune. And Petronella, of course, which most yeah. people know the name of but haven't had a chance to dance. And of course the aesthetic is a little different. There was a lot more uh, in uh, the traditional contra dance days, there was a lot more, uh, uh, it was more cooperative in a way, you know, because the inactive people were there to serve the actives in a way. You know, mm. you, got, you got to stand around and watch these people dance. And then when they came back, you had to interact with them. You know, I'm thinking in particular of things like chorus jig, where the actives are going down the outside and they're going down the inside. And then and as inactives, you just stand in there watching their antics. And it's it's good. It's good. I think our aesthetic now, it's like everyone is like, I want to be active all the time. <laughs> and I don't want to wait around and watch someone else have fun. That sounds so American, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't it. Yeah, and that's a change. Oh, absolutely. And I miss the, there's the, the casting off, which is a, a, a move that was like in almost every dance. You know, casting off and right, left, four, it was all with same, normally, same sex. But, you know, you had your arm around whoever it was next to you. And, yeah. Um, that feeling of that move in Money Musk is my oh, favorite part. Some people love oh, the balances in Money Musk. For me, mm -hmm. it's that moment where you just lock eyes mm, and walk around each other. Mm, it's so great. Yeah. Or Chorus Jig, that magic of when you are going through Contra Corners and there's a magically a hand out there yes. to reach you at the right place. Yep. You know, like you have to, if you're out, you have to take that job very seriously. Yes. Put your, put the right hand out. That's right. <laughs> or the left hand. Right. <laughs> put the correct hand out. <laughs> yep. So that, I mean, so the old, you know, the, those dance, those tunes that fit particular dances, of course, are, are maybe even more nostalgic than some of the others. Um, so it's interesting because you have really been playing in the Contra scene during the advent of dance weekends, countrywide tours, mm -hmm. like a, a, the real shift from it, there being a regional scene, which there still is. Many communities have their own local regional scene where their dancers don't travel, People mm -hmm. don't necessarily travel too unless they're passing through it. 
But then also there's this nationwide kind of circuit that both musicians, callers, and dancers will go on. Yes, yes. And, you know, in uh, this time of isolation, uh, I always thought that the dance community was more in name than in substance. That, you know, most dancers were sort of in it for themselves and... Uh, there wasn't, the, the community was momentary. It was like when you came together at a dance, you didn't, you don't know that much about all these people that you're dancing with. In the past, I'm sure that was a lot different because mm -hmm. it was like you were saying, communities, uh, you know, physical communities. But, but I'm seeing in this era that there is a feeling of, some kind of cohesiveness all around uh -huh. among whatever the dance community is but um, even just the feeling even though we're not playing for people anymore just that feeling that there is a caring group of a caring circle and people taking care of each other in this community Mm -hmm. Whatever this community is. Yeah. Dancers and musicians. Yeah, I've been seeing that too. And it's really wonderful. So you feel that. Yeah. yeah. It's like during this pandemic, I'm especially glad that I live in New England because everyone is around me. Yeah. You know, and that, that makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I always loved about concha dancing in the beginning is that it's a place where anyone can go and feel welcome, ideally. <laughs> and so I think about people who don't have that, like, who don't have their own community at home and would rely on that community, which is why it's so great that there's online things and Zoom calls and, yeah. you know, it's not the same, yeah. but. Yeah, I mean, I haven't tapped into that. I, I, I really am such a here and now kind of, per, you know, it's like a really weak substitute for the real thing. And I suppose I, I still have to figure out personally how I'm, if and how I'm going to be part of that. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe I will wait yeah. until we can get, get together and dance again, because I know it'll, it will happen and it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. <laughs> Or maybe a few awkward days and then a really good day. But it's oh. going to be a good day oh, it's when be, it yeah. finally is ready. That's what we say, yes. That's what we say. Yeah. I think there's a, I find it very encouraging that this is a tradition that is hundreds of years old. It has survived other things before. Mm -hmm. It's going to survive this. Yeah, you know, will. we'll keep it the uh, the lamp lighters. They're going to keep the lamps lit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. what like what are your I don't know this is such an open any question I don't know how to ask <laughs> it but tell me about any thoughts you have about dance weekends forming and some of the experiences you've had and how that changes the music or what the dancers expect or anything like that or something entirely different that okay. you want to talk about <laughs> <laughs> because that's a big question yeah well I did. 
think about that a little bit. Um, it, uh, it, you know, I. Th There's always been pressure for people to have a better time, I guess, you know, and it's like you always, you can, if you go to a dance, you can complain about the people that don't know how to dance or don't know how to swing. And, and then so people started doing like these advanced contradance things where it was like, or when we were in the early days, we'd have little gatherings of people and sometimes I'm sure it felt very exclusive especially to people who weren't invited or didn't know about it and um, and then there became that uh, you know the advanced contradance uh, trend mm -hmm. challenging contrast challenging which is you know I I can appreciate that. Uh, I don't really aspire to that. You know, I, I, I totally feel that, that this kind of dancing is, is for everybody. And if, if you're not versed in it, uh, as long as you have fun, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, just like music, if you're with a group of people that are all in the same groove or all like able to be at a certain level, there's a huge, there's an awful lot of joy and fun in, in that too. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and so, you know, the dance weekend scene, I think, came out of that, you know, uh, people in dance communities going like, well, I want to go to something that's just a little bit better and um, some people say it's detracting from the local dances, and I know that uh, before the pandemic hit, there there were communities complaining and or not complaining, but just noticing that the numbers were going down, which could be that there are just so many places to dance, especially here in New England. I mean, you could dance just about every day of the week and you could dance three times on Sundays in multiple of the week. places yeah exactly <laughs> so it goes to stands to reason that that the uh, community might be a little dissipated yeah um, yet you know just speaking from the greenfield scene even though quite a good number of those dances were not highly attended the dancing quality was just you could always count on it being good i mean i i just i you could just about go to any dance and it was like oh yeah yeah these are the dances at the grange yeah well david started the dave caner started the dances and actually swallowtail tried to start and even before that i think applejack had a dance at the grange Guiding Star Grange in Greenfield. It was obviously a great dance hall, but nobody, it wasn't on anybody's map. So Swallowtail did it maybe a couple times, and you know, there would be someone, a few people would come and they'd stick their head in and they'd see that no one was there and they'd go away, and then maybe they'd come back in a little, mm -hmm. in an hour, and maybe there were like enough for one set. So we just didn't get it going. And then uh, when Dave started up, he just really was. I feel like part of it was just that he was very persistent and 
got the word out and said, mm-hmm. this is going to be great. <laughs> you know, just come that on along. That magic charisma. He did his. start that, um, put put the Guiding Star Grange on the map. And uh, we picked up the first Saturday um, soon after that. Um, when would that have been? Uh, late 80s? Carrie was playing with us in the late 80s, um, and then maybe just very late 89, 90, 91 is uh, maybe when we started doing that. Mm-hmm. Someone will know. It's yeah. in the record somewhere. Right, someone will know. But the Greenfield Grange has flourished to being like one of, like a lot of people from out of town consider it like the Mecca. Yeah. One of the yeah. Mecca, like Nelson, New Hampshire being a different kind of mm-hmm. Mecca. Yeah. And a place where you could go to dancing every Friday, Saturday night. That's right. And many Sundays, there's something going on. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, well, clearly the facility has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the, uh, in my experience, those dances that really flourish have that kind of resource. And, and people don't. There are other places where the hall just is, you know, there are drawbacks one way or another, and it can really, you know, just the physical aspects of these halls Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. And and again, New England is blessed. Uh, I guess culturally, dancing, dance halls were a big part of... Mm -hmm life in New England. The, many of the town halls had dance facilities. Even churches had, you know, their, their function halls that were uh, great dance venues. Mm-hmm. Um, and many other parts of the country do not have that resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you think about the Peterborough Town Hall. Yeah. What an amazing yes. space for dancing. And there used to be the Walpole Town Hall, mm-hmm. which now has been cut up into like little office cubicles. It was a really great dance hall. Mm-hmm. Wal- um, oh, wait. Walpole, New Hampshire. Um, and I was actually thinking of Northfield. There used to be the, a Northfield dance that mm-hmm. the uh, Foregone Conclusions did. And then there was maybe even a Dawn dance. I remember Swallowtail playing there. Some of the early days mm-hmm. in Northfield. These these Grange halls seem especially suited. The Greenfield yep. Hall, the Montague Grange, which David yep. Kaner was really instrumental in helping preserve. The Montpelier one, which is yep. still going well. Yep. And, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, some of these dances go well enough that then you can undertake a lot of uh, capital improvements to the hall <laughs> oh, yeah. to make it nicer, but they require some sustenance. And you've been you uh, know, deeply involved in mm. the Greenfield Grange's health and well-being for a very long time. It's getting up there. I think I've been the master of the Grange now for 13, 12, 12, uh, more than 12 years, maybe going on, I don't know what, uh, a good number of years, 15 years. Before that, it was Steve Ball, and uh, there were a number of the people. Dave Kaner was the master of Montague Grange, but I don't think he ever was uh, master of 
of Greenfield as the guiding star, mm -hmm. though he held many offices. I, he's still uh, on the executive committee. Mm -hmm. But the struggle has been to try to keep the hall monetarily accessible mm -hmm. for rents. Like the Peterborough Hall is way expensive now. You know, mm -hmm. it, went, it went way up. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to to have a regular dance there. I don't think the regular dance is there the first Saturday in Peterborough. Or is it? Is it in the hall? I played there sometime this year, and it was there. It's there. Yeah, they had maybe Maybe two they lines. have a special rate with yeah. them. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We have to protect, the value these things as a, the community resources that they are. Yeah. I think it's easier for dancers to not realize how important the hall is. Yes. But especially you see it in urban places yes. where halls are harder to find. Yes. If the hall disappears, the dance disappears. Yes. And... Yes. Like you look in Boston, that the VFW dance was huge yes. for many years. And when they lost the VFW, that dance still continues, but it changed a lot mm. in moving around from Spring Step to the Scout House. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It, it can be very difficult. So we have to we have to cherish our mm -hmm. halls. We do. And cherish the people who do all the invisible, ugly work <laughs> of running them. Yeah. And cherish the people that built them. You know, I mean, that's the way we feel about Guiding Star. I mean, I, I definitely do. It was built as a dance hall in 36, 1936. So wow. that would have been, and I wrote a little bit about that when I was, uh, you know, when we're trying, right now we're trying, we have, I feel, stabilized the hall as far as not losing the hall in the near future because of the lack of revenue. But when I was writing about it, I, I wrote about 1936, which would have been the uh, middle of the Depression. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if there's anything in the record about that. You know, the fact that they were able to build the hall at that time is a big testament to the usefulness of, you know, what the need at that the need then too right like dancing which is a red relatively low cost accessible activity yeah, is so yeah. important in a time like that mm. it's too bad that in a pandemic we can't do oh, it oh wow <laughs> if yeah. this were just an economic recession we would all stop traveling and go dancing and do cheaper things at home exactly and, you know, Anne like, was saying just recently it's like we had, in spite of all the crises that we see in the world, it seemed that at least we would have dancing. Yeah. Yeah. But and no. Not yet. <laughs> no. No. Not yet. No. Isolated dancing. And it certainly is not the same. Yeah. No, it's pretty hard. I mean, some callers and choreographers are starting to write little choreography for people who are far apart, but... You know, that's good. Let them try it and enjoy their amusement from it. But it's not going to scratch the itch for most people, of course. Yeah, that's what I find. But I do think it'll just be like riding a bicycle. Nobody's going to forget. Yeah. The moves aren't even that hard. No, they're not. If you can walk, you can dance, right? Yeah, and it's. I think it's a chance for us as a community to reconsider what's important 
to us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. people get caught up in what band it is and what color it is and whether they like the dance and they kind of forget about just the joy of being together. Or that becomes, we take it for granted that we can always be together. Yes. So I'm really yes. looking forward to that feeling of, you know, rediscovery. Yeah. It's interesting, going back to halls, it's interesting how some characteristics of a hall can change the kind of community it creates. Yeah. And at the Guiding Star Grange, the fact that the, the stage is so big, mm. that's really where I learned to play for concert dances, oh. and many people did. Even though I first danced in Maine, and then I really learned in Boston, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in Boston, there were no stages that you could sit on during the dance. Right, right. And the fact that, like, especially during David's dances, where you could just sit up on stage and watch. You didn't mm-hmm. have to be a musician. Right. You could even talk backstage yes. while the musicians yeah. were playing. They were so tolerant. Yeah, we always love to have company. Yeah. It's always good to have people to hang out with on the stage. Yeah, and that really makes the feeling that the musicians and the dancers, they're all, everyone's all the same people. Yeah. Yep. You're not like just up on the stage separate from everyone. And I used to just sit up there and watch how it all worked and listen and learn. And you can sit in and many people have done that over the years. So it's a wonderful thing. But you mm. need a big enough stage to do it. Yep. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!